Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And today we're talking about inequities in higher education. Now, if you recall from the last episode, we talked to Dr. Michael Couch II, who shared his perspective when it comes to financial aid and adopting and adapting that equity lens. We're going to move a little bit further today into the college experience and hearing about this concept of student basic needs or essential needs and some of the things that students need to thrive and survive in classrooms. And we're going to be hearing from Bezel Taylor, who is a trusted friend and colleague, another black social worker who understands why we do the work that we do and why we have to do it the way that we do it. And a little note about Bezel, we both went to undergrad at the same time, and I don't think we ever really crossed paths. But upon joining the career of social work, it became apparent that when you find another black man doing the work, you want to be in close fellowship with them. And so I, I would say that I have more, many more conversations with Bezel now about how we can transform the world, how we can improve society, how we can hit on sneakers app, which you'll hear very shortly, and what it means to be black in this space. And so I'm really excited to introduce you all to Bezel Taylor. Bezel? James, I first want to say thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for creating a platform such as this to create spaces for um, not just social workers, but folks that are invested in equity across the spectrum of topics. We need this, um, and it, it means a whole lot to me to, to see this happen, especially from a, a Black man in our community. Um, so I am Bezel Taylor. I am currently uh, one of the co-facilitators for the Michigan State University School Social Work Racial and Social Justice Collaborative. Um, I also work on research projects with uh, Texas Southern University's Center for Justice Research. Right now we're working on police reform efforts to look at how we can share police reform efforts on a national scale. So we're working with other you know, national legislators. We're also looking at some state level things because as we know, um, all politics is local. And so it sounds like you're doing quite a bit of work as far as advocacy for a few different populations. You know, you mentioned criminal justice reform. I know you're doing the racial equity work for MSU. What is tying all those things together for you? The main thing that, that's tying it all together is, I would say, personal experience. Um, that that's one thing. Being being uh, being someone who like I'm from Detroit. I I grew up. You know, I'm a graduate of Detroit Public Schools. Um, I was a part of all those sort of pull pull black people up from a place once they get to the university sort of programs that, that are in, in the in the universities that we see. So, you know, whether it was trio or or different things like that. So I've experienced the need for equity in, in different programs. I've experienced that in, in my own life. So. With the, with the Racial and Social Justice Collaborative, I mean, again, uh, I wasn't a social work student in undergrad, but I was in uh, psychology. And, and there, I know what it's like to be in a classroom and not see many people that look like you. 
and, and, and not see many instructors or professors that look like you either. So taking the time to be critical of, of the spaces that we're in on that sort of something that, that's re really important, making sure that students who are in these universities, especially predominantly white institutions, have people that are invested specifically in, in their growth. And the same thing sort of happened uh, with the work with Texas Southern, um, flocking again from, from my personal life. I'm from Detroit, which is, you know, on paper, I've seen studies that cause Detroit the blackest city in America between white flight and other things. Our city has one of the blackest police forces. We have one of the blackest cities by population, which is changing some with some of the gentrification that we see happening in the city. But I see the contrast to, to cities that have, you know, a more diverse, I'll say, police force than Detroit. Detroit is last on the list in, in police shootings um, nationally from, from a study that I, that I recently uh, cited in, in some work that we were doing. So looking at that, and I'm like, well, you know, we, we're not struggling in the area of needing police reform as bad, but as the city changes, we will. So I think, you know, all of those things, thinking back to, you know, just being a, a young Black boy growing up in the city or a young Black man, college student <laughs> going through these these different systems, man, we, we got to figure out a way to, uh, you know, create some some spaces for, for our people to grow. I agree. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, creating space to grow and also thinking about students as a whole. And so one of the, the ways that, you know, your work actually caught my attention was something that you were doing around students' basic needs. And mm -hmm. so just kind of describe that for the listeners. What, what does that mean and what does it entail? For sure. So student basic needs, um, and the, the language is kind of shifting. So it's moving to essential needs, which it, it sounds better. So I'm rolling with it. So, the, I mean, the basic needs, essential needs movement is explicitly for college students looking at housing, uh, food insecurity, blatant homelessness, um, access to financial resources, and all those things at the college level. So, I mean, think back to high school. Um, you know, what did we hear? When we were on our way to college, we heard nobody gonna hold our hand. Nobody's going to uh, wake us up in the morning when it's time to get to class. Those professors don't care about you. You know, we, we, we hear all of those things. Um, and really the question is like, what message is that really sending? I remember at my orientation uh, for undergraduate studies, we, we were told, look to your left, look to your right. One of these people will not be here. And I had to think about it. I'm like, I'm sitting to somebody's left and right. Am I the one who won't be here? Uh, you know, and, and what's the situation? And, the, and, and that, I think, that that's a terrible intro for the level of support that students may be receiving on their way on their way in. Now, is, is it reality that that a lot of those supports just aren't there? So you gotta, you know, you you gotta try to pull it together and get your own things rolling. That might be true, uh, but that doesn't mean that's the right way for things to operate. When we look at the prices of tuition, when we look at um, you know, how much money different things inside these institutions bring in. Uh, paying A student paying $14,000 per semester for tuition, um, you know, we need, we need institutions to sort of step it, sort of step it up, um, figure out a way to create 
some some equity between the students who come in with all the resources. You know, we we think about first generation students. Um, it is it, not it's not a role paved in gold for them. Whereas other students, you know, if you have parents who have been the college route, there's there's support. There, there's that support there. Um, and I and I think if a student does not have all those things that we that we mentioned, so um, again we can get back to housing. Uh, food insecurity and just money to get through deodorant. Think about that. There, there was a time when I encountered a student who told me that they had not been going to class because they didn't have money to go get hygiene products. They, they, they had food. They had an apartment, but it's like, man, I can't go to class. I got class all day. I, it was like three classes back to back, and it was the middle of summer. So they're like, man, I will be in there. You know, not doing my best, I'll just put it that way. Um, and I think we gotta, we gotta think about those things. Sometimes students have issues back home. Like I know for a fact, when I was an undergrad, um, you know, I, I had family issues and when they gave me a refund check of $1,200, I could, sure, I could hold on to that 1200 and make sure I had everything I needed or if mom needs some help on the light bill or my brother and sister need some shoes or, you know, different things like that. Those are the things that we gotta take into account. Um, and, and figure out, you know, take students one by one. I know in social work, we often talk about, um, you know, seeing the whole student and, you know, sort of making things individualized. Where, where does, where does that fall off? And we, we gotta, we gotta pick up some of that slack there. Now you mentioned the impacts like in the classroom and the inability to focus, but are there other impacts that not meeting those essential needs as a college student that it shows itself. So we're sold. I remember in my master's program, uh, one of the one of the first things that I remember in policy was we talked about education being the great equalizer. Education is the thing for students that will pull you out of poverty, and it's been sold this way since the early 1900s. Getting a higher education degree it, it increases. Uh, it, it increases work prospect, it increases, you know, profitability, all those different things. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, there, there's some things that, that were sold, you know, like you're supposed to be broke when you're in college. Um, I, I think those narratives are for students who already have all of their basic needs met, uh, not the students who are actually hungry. So I, I think, you know, we got some evidence that that shows, I mean, and there's, there's studies from all over. Um, one big one is the, the Hope Center in, at Temple University. They, they do a, a, a study called Real College. Um, and and uh, the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, we can look back to Maslow's hierarchy of need um, and it's there. It's there that if you don't have food, if you don't have a safe place to sleep, if you don't have all of these, you know, these basic level things met, um, you cannot, a student especially cannot be expected to learn, um, cannot be expected to be, uh, to perform well in the classroom. Um, and that, that, why would we think that that doesn't correlate to college? It's the same. It's the exactly the same. So, you know, students without that housing and without, uh, without access to food and, and financial resources, they are, they're more likely to have unsatisfactory grades. Um, they, they're, they're more likely to drop out of college. Um, another thing that I saw is that 
these students are more likely to make attempts to get their needs met by unlawful efforts. So when we talk about I'm hungry, if a person's hungry, they're going to find a way to eat. Um, and I think there, there's some things that that we need to look at there also, and that you know look at those the the racial disparities there, um, and and, and the, the breakdown of who the students are in our universities who are hungry, um, and who who are lacking housing. So I, I think there's there's overall just less expected success from a student who experiences these things. But the issue is that. Um, how many universities or institutions, be it community college also, like are looking at this population. It, it seems like, you know, there's this sentiment that once, once a student makes it to college, it's like, clap it up. We got, we got, we did it. But that's not the case for everyone. You know, I usually avoid like pop culture references, but the first thing that comes to mind is um, Prez and Dookie from The Wire, right? Oh. So you got a student who was shining, doing great work, didn't have access to a washing machine, you know, wasn't able to keep his clothes clean. And you saw what his trajectory lended to. Like the last episode of The Wire messes me up every time I watch it because, you know, you had high hopes for him as a student because he did show that he had promise. And I imagine there's so many other students, I mean, like us who came from Detroit public schools, got to college, quote unquote reality set in and there wasn't a safety net to to protect them because I had those same speeches about you know no one's going to wake you up and there were many times where I didn't wake up for that very reason it's like I, no one's holding me accountable it's all good I'll, I'll check Angel later and see what happens exactly exactly and and, and it's it, it's far too often I mean I can I can give a bit of a story but I you know, I worked in uh, homeless youth services in Chicago, um, Kansas City. I did this work sort of all over. And that's, it wasn't until that point that I even looked back and I was like, geez, was I homeless when I was in college? Like I didn't, you know, when, when we look at the definition of homelessness, I'm just laid out. A, a person who does not have a fixed and regular nighttime dwelling space. There, there was, there were semesters where it's like, yo, can I, can I stay with you at your place? Cause I like things are getting rough for me and I don't have the money to, like, I had to handle some stuff at the crib. So I don't have the money to, to have my own apartment at, you know, whatever apartment space where everybody was living, you know? So, th so thinking about that, you know, I, I, I came to the realization, especially as I was working with college age young people, I was working with 17 to 24 year olds and I was like man not too long ago this was me and I looked at my undergraduate GPA um, I finished undergrad with the 2.1 GPA um, and the whole time my thought process was uh, maybe I'm not cut out for this maybe it's not maybe I'm not I'm just not that smart um, and and then I went and did a graduate degree and dropped a 3.97. And I was like, oh, I just didn't have all the things I needed. And and and, and I think that's another that's another thing that sort of pushes me to this place to continue this work. Uh, because how many students are in that space right now? I think I think it's a it's a lot. Um, I think but I, I can 
I won't <laughs> confidentiality. I'm a social worker, but I can name friends. I can name friends, a ton of us who in the time in college, you know, were popular folks, fraternity friends, you know, like, like we struggle. And it, and it, it wasn't because, you know, both grades wise, but also financially. And we, we sort of wear that as a badge of honor. I think we often get, we get caught in this space of looking at resilience and we reward resilience and people of color and poor folks. And the issue there is, yeah, I, I, I agree. Resilience is great. Being able to make it through and fight through. Our people have been resilient our, our, since inception, since arriving here. Uh, since 1619, we've been resilient. But in many of these systems, uh, we shouldn't have to be resilient. We, we shouldn't have to fall back on our resilience to make it through, you know, once we're accepted. I feel we're slowly transitioning into the solution, right? And one of the things that I noticed early on was that you actually hosted a symposium at a university. And so what role do universities play in the solution? You know, or how are they in a position to assist students in meeting their essential needs? Because as far mm -hmm. as, you know, the big picture to me is you've cut your check for tuition, you on your own. That, that is, that's the message. That's, that is overwhelmingly the message. Once that tuition check is cut, if you have financial aid, we'll cut you a small check to try to get you through your living. You know, that financial aid budget is set and this is what you have for housing and this is what you have. But as as areas grow, overwhelmingly, that budget for housing is not enough. You know, even with the full allotment, that budget for housing is not enough. So we, we got to we got to look at that. Um, and and some institutions may say, well, that's not that's not our, our issue, um, especially those who don't have, you know, if we look at community colleges and things like that, who don't have on-campus housing. Now, for the institutions that do, I think it is a problem because you're making money. Again, there's another time that you're making money and students are ending up with bills because, again, the housing, you know, housing may not be covered. Uh, you know, getting into COVID-19 and basic needs is a whole other podcast <laughs> so yeah yeah i've I've avoided the COVID 19 conversation just because it's so big right like it, there's so many different ways you can spin it I, I, but and i will say this one thing the issue the issues that have been exacerbated by COVID 19 COVID 19 didn't create them they are issues that already existed, and it's the exact same with this student basic needs stuff in COVID-19 when we talk about cameras and folks being required, like data and being students being able to log on, all these things. But back to that, I think one big part of the solution for universities um, and just institutions in general, but we can stick with universities, is that student support is in their mission. Student support is what they do every college you know, or or college department, unit, university, supporting students to and through graduation is in their mission somewhere. It's worded some kind of way. Um, so the question that I pose is who, like, at what point does that stop? Because when a student is not doing well in class because of whatever it may be, like, does the student support sort of stop there? I've had students come to me and say, well, you know, the, the dean of my college told me I wasn't cut out to be here because, 
you know, I'm having these troubles at home. So they said, maybe I should take some time away and, you know, handle that. And, and I can see that. I, I, I don't love it, but I can see that. But on the flip side of that, why is the first question not how can I support you to stay here? What are the things that you're lacking and how can I support you to continue to stay here? Um, you know, I think leaning on the mission of the, of the, the institution or the entity, I think we got to ensure that everybody who's working or coming in contact with students are, are trained and ready to see the whole student um, and not just, not just the academic piece. And then judge the academic piece without looking at the other parts. Uh, you know, students, students come in, you know, with, with a lot of different situations to these university and um, educational settings. We have to, uh, especially if we take that check, <laughs> once you take that check at your institution, you have, a, there's a responsibility there. Um, and I know a lot of educators will look and say, you know, it's not, but K-12 is there. And it's like, okay, so from K through 12, from you know, what's K, five, five years old? From five years old to 17, 18 years old, you know, we make sure you eat. We make sure you, you know, we, we're checking up on you really hard to make sure you got all these things. But as soon as you hit 17, 18, and you're not a part of this system anymore, we don't care what happens to you. But, but it's still, a, you know, government funding is going into those places. I think we got we to gotta switch that. And even if it's not institutional, individuals who work in these systems have to open their eyes and see their students. Uh, there's not, I guarantee you, it'll be, you'll be hard pressed maybe, hopefully, to find an instructor at a university or, or college. If you say your student is struggling based on X, Y, Z, um, do you care that they'll say no? Now, if you're willing to do something about it, I think that's another thing. Uh, so I think the other piece is, uh, you know, building up these offices to create the space for students to be supported. Because the, the, the worst thing is for a student to be struggling, an instructor or an advisor or someone say, how can I help? The student says, I don't have a home to sleep in. And then that instructor or advisor doesn't know what to do next. And I think that's often the case because this is not a, a, a issue that, you know, many people think about the, 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 assumption is once a student arrives to campus we good you know once you get there you got it all like you got your dorm you got your you know you got your meal plan dorms and meal plan that's that's another tuition for for you know for people um i mean and i think there's other things in the in the policy area that universities institute so i think you know when we have these academic probation recess meetings there, there's time, these are the spaces and the times where you can ask the questions to figure out what's happening with their students. Uh, and, and as you see what's happening, you can help on an individual basis, but you can also, again, create the systems that don't perpetuate those same inequities that, that existed from the beginning, like uh, eviction from university housing for non-payment. Once you, if your tuition is paid and a, a, a student can't pay their rent, I understand, you know, it's a business that we got to get paid based on how, you know, university housing. But at the same time, you're working in opposite of your mission when you do that. So, you know, what is the support? What's the follow-up when a student is recessed, you know, sent home for a semester? What's the follow-up to make sure that student can come back? Where's the wraparound services? 
Um, you know, so I think those are those are some of the things, you know, that they can do to sort of open their eyes and see see what's happening. And have you seen any places or any models where that worked? Because when you said, you know, whole student, you know, a whole thing came to mind, like this should be, if not an evidence-based practice, an emerging practice, like somebody should be taking this and doing it. Have you seen it out in the field? Yeah, yeah. So there, there are, I mean, one place, this, this reminds me of, there's like an AOC quote where, you know, they, they ask her about, in the defund the police conversation, like, can we see communities? Like, what what's some examples of defund the police that have worked? And she said, oh, just look to the suburbs. Um, the the place to look for this is community colleges. Community colleges don't have housing, um, and a lot of times meal plans set up. So they're like their support services around their population, and also you know community college students are sometimes viewed as you know, like that's a that either a pit stop or for the students who weren't cut out. That again, that conversation of who's cut out for higher education um, on their, on certain levels. Uh, but community colleges have that student support lens that major universities need. So I think you know, looking at the models of supportive services in community colleges, one. Um, but but another, and and I know it's utopic for us Midwest folks. When we start to talk about what California is doing, it's almost like a it's almost like a different country. Um, but if we look at the University of California system, there's a lot of research happening about how to support, and there are you know there's uh, you know university how at certain institutions, and I can't name you know specific ones offhand, um, but they're just look into that that University of California system if it's something that you're interested in you know, knowing more about the, the, the tackle, the, the way that they're tackling uh, student basic needs, the, the Hope Center at Temple, they used to be at, you know, University of Wisconsin, and that team there, uh, again, they're doing the research, they are sending out these, uh, you know, they're doing nationwide surveys, so they're, you know, a different institution can get signed up with the Hope Center to conduct the research to know what their, their numbers are like, um, I know in 2018, across the nation, the numbers of students who were experiencing some level of housing insecurity was somewhere between 8 and 12 percent. So uh, because this is a place that is dear to my heart, if we take the, the student population of Michigan State, which is at about 55,000, 8 to 12, let's be in the middle at 10, that's 5,500 students. Imagine 5,500 students who don't have access to stable housing. Um, you know, uh, it, uh, that's astronomical. That is, that is, that's something that, you know, that causes the uproar. And we, you know, at Michigan State, we, we've not done that real college survey, but, you know, we have been doing some internal things uh, with the Racial and Social Justice Collaborative. And, you know, just to, you know, a, a more brief survey of students, um, and, and it wasn't current students, it, it was alumni. Um, I got it out to maybe about 100 alumni. And of those alumni, I think about, uh, if I remember correctly, it was about 40%, 40% of the, the alumni that I polled in it. And to be fair, these were just, you know, people that where I got it from was you know, my social media, like, so the, the friends that I had in, in college, um, 
40% of folks said that they experienced some sort of homelessness or um, that they had like a friend who experienced homelessness or to stay with them for a brief amount of time or an extended amount of time. So I think, you know, we got to look at, we got, if we look at college, James, it's, it's, um, it's the land of fitting in. And when you don't have, when you don't, when you don't have the new sneakers, if you don't have money to get a haircut, if you don't have a place to sleep, like, yeah, you can get by a couple, oh yeah, we hanging out with the homies and we're going to be over here. You know, I, I'm going to just sleep on your couch. That, that, that wears out quickly. Um, and, and we got to look at, you know, how we, how we support students to get out of those spaces. Are there other things that, you know, thinking outside of education, because you mentioned there were other institutions engaged in this space too, because we think about systems, everybody's got a hand in. Mm -hmm. What are other things that they could be doing or better yet not doing to promote those essential needs? Yeah. One thing, and I guess this is on this is on both of these sort of systems. The the supportive services that are not a part of university systems, they need to be ushered into to the university populations, and that's not something that I've seen happen often. Um, you know, the the outlook that a homeless youth serving agency would have, the different theories that they practice under. You know, looking at you know, whether it be harm reduction, positive youth development, you know, different different things that exist in these agencies. If if those people were allowed to come in, those agencies, those uh, you know, those folks that are invested in in the the win, it more preventative efforts could be reached. You know, it it could be accomplished with, with more collaboration and collaborative efforts on that front. Um, I, I can remember with MSU, I went to a CLC meeting, which is the continuum of care for uh, homeless service providers. And when I showed up and said that I was from MSU, I was a student with MSU working on, uh, working on student homelessness, and we're trying to get resources both internal and external to the university, those providers lost it. Oh, I've been trying, you know, I heard it from everywhere, from uh, United Way to, you know, local food banks, like not, you know, not the university food bank, but, you know, outside entities, they've been trying their hardest to sort of get in that space. So opening that door, um, I think some other things that we have to look at is legislation. We got to look at, you know, legislation that, that could and should exist to require institutions to provide for the support of students. Once that tuition is paid, that's a lot of money wherever, however you slice, even at community colleges, uh, you know, it's a, and, and like I said, they do better, but I think that there has to be some sort of requirement, um, be it under one of the titles, however we slice it up, but th there needs to, there needs to be some requirement and legislation that requires, um, you know, institutions or people within these institutions to, to take a look at how students are being supported again, going back to the process of academic probation and recess from the university, like they, like there's, there are policies that, that, that could be brought in and collaboration that could be, that could, you know, take a, make a dip in the number of, of students who are not having all the resources that they need. 
So in, in your own role, right, you know, you're, you're advocating in these spaces, you're engaged with universities, I know you're engaged with legislators as well, and I think you, you touched on it, but what's your why, right? You know, what keeps you going? Yeah. The, the, thing that, the thing that keeps me going more than anything is, again, that lived experience. And a question that I often ask in meetings is what or, or who? Who, as we take a long time to figure out what we're going to do as a system, as an entity, as a, the school of social work, as the college of social science, whatever, whoever it is we are, um, as we take our time to figure the, these things out, who's falling through the cracks? Who is hungry or doesn't have a safe place to sleep tonight that we're not reaching? And I think that that more than anything keeps me going, James. It's like I, I know what it feels like to not to not have, um, and I don't want anybody else to to feel that way. Um, but I, I also. I know what it's like, and I've seen like if, if even if I take myself out of it, um, I've seen the difference. I had a student when I worked in Chicago. Um, he had not yet graduated high school when he when he came in with us. Um, at the, I was a program manager at a housing program in Chicago, and when he got to us, you know, he he was having you know home struggles, and he took the ACT. At first, he didn't want to take it, but he took it maybe about a year into coming to our program. Um, this kid was quirky, I say. You know, he he did all of the quirky young kid things. He he loved anime, and he had like a blade coat that he wore in seventy degree weather. Like he was, this, but this is one of my favorite kids that I ever interacted with. With at at that you know in that role, he was a beautiful soul. Um, but he, he just didn't have the confidence to. He you know he's like I don't think I can make it in college. So he I, once he took the ACT, he got a twenty six first try, no studying. 26 on the ACT. Um, Not I. But he, exactly. And he was still afraid, you know, he was afraid of the college route. Um, around the time that I was leaving, he, long, long story short, this kid got enrolled at DePaul. He got a full ride to go to DePaul to do animation. And this kid works in Japan. He went from being homeless, not having all the things he needs. He moved to Japan to, you know, teach English, but also to pursue a career in, you know, Japanese anime production. If that's not a story of why it's important to invest in young people um, who who have the potential, but just don't have the resources to get there, um, I don't know what it is. Now that's inspiring. On so many fronts, because I took that ACT twice. I didn't, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even want to take it the second time. My mama made me. <sighs> Listen, I fell asleep during the ACT. I, <laughs> I was coming up one night, and I wanted to go to sleep. Yeah, listen. So, uh, I mean, so that tells you, you know, the kind of. I said I call him a genius, you know, and I, and and I and but he's not. Um, He's not an anomaly. 
Like we we have young people with all the potential in the world who, again, you know, to lean on that resilience, to lean on, you know, they have all the tools to make it through that they can get, you know, that come internally. But if you don't have a house, if you don't have food, you know, none, none of that stuff shines through. So. And this, the social worker in me always wants to ask about self-care. You know, how do you take care of yourself in the midst of everything, especially knowing that it's close to you from lived experience? Yeah. I think there's like a, a cliche thing of, you know, folks saying, well, you know, this this is my self-care. Knowing, knowing that I'm providing, James, I love sneakers. I hate to keep it on it. <laughs> um, I love, you know, I play video games. I, I do, I take time for myself. I think that that's the biggest thing uh, for me when I'm, when I'm off, I'm off and I feel okay with knowing that I've, I went, I've gone above and beyond in the hours that I was on. Uh, you know, I, I take pride in being a connector. So I try to, you know, I, I even take a little bit of time before I get to my video games or, you know, check in my sneakers app to see if I can, get the Jordan one mochas. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I take time to try to make sure I got people connected and I can do as much for others in that time, I, even outside of my role, because that's just what I, that makes me happy. You know, uh, us being connected, uh, you know, that that's a that's a shining point for me. You know, that that honestly, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, you asked about my why earlier. I think being connected to people that are doing good stuff, uh, that keeps me motivated and energized. Um, you know, so again, I, I don't know, I guess I wouldn't take that as a, as a moment to just, again, I'll say thanks for, you know, everything that you're doing. Cause it, 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 it keeps me, it keeps me going. Everything from your Twitter to, to Instagram posts, presentations, all that, man. So I appreciate you. My Twitter would be reckless, man. <laughs> day, I'm just waiting on the fans to say, hey, chill out. Um, so is there one thing that you want to drive home, right? You know, one thing that if folks didn't listen to the entire episode and I could say fast forward to this minute, what is the thing that you want people to take with them? Don't assume that your experience it's someone else's experience just because, you know, they're from a similar background. Hold your head up, you know, for educators and for people in communities, hold your head up and see students. Look at the things that are happening with them. Look at, you know, when, when a grade, when a student is not doing well in class, they don't want to not be doing well in class. Maybe, just maybe something's going on, you know, and, and I think it might be a stretch. Some educators, especially, you know, folks I know that are doing PhD programs uh, may not agree, but you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to see your students. Um, and that might be, you know, I'm a social worker and looking at social work education as, you know, a next step. But you got to hold your head up from whatever it is you do day in and day out. If you work with students, they are your responsibility and they need you. Students need you. They need you to see them. They need you to support them um, and not just academically you know sometimes it, it, it students need it hey how you doing is everything okay you know is there is there something outside of academics I can help you with I saw you did not so great on this paper uh, you know and I you know that's not on par for you so is, is there anything going on 
um, and figure out what those resources are in your community. You know, I think that's easy to say for social workers, but even, you know, if you're an engineer, especially educators of color, when you're in the, I know, you know, you, you might worry about students, you know, getting over, oh, this student's lazy. Oh, I mean, I know I was lazy at times. <laughs> like, I, I think we all, we all had those moments, but you don't want to lean on lazy and miss out on a moment where you could have been a help to a student who needs you. So how can people keep up with you? I mean, you mentioned the Racial Justice Collaborative. You mentioned the work you're doing with UT Southern. How can people, you know, follow the progress that you're making? Yeah, um, so I would say Google, again, because I don't know these websites offhand. Uh, Texas Southern University, which is an illustrious HBCU, might I add. Um, Texas Southern University Center for Justice Research. Um, and there, the center is doing all kind of projects. I won't just plug what I'm doing. Um, the Center for Justice Research is, you know, actively engaged in action research. Um, and I, I can appreciate that more um, than anything else. I think we got to get research out front um, and, and be in the conversation about policy changes that we need in our communities. Um, I will also say, look at the MSU School of Social Work, Racial and Social Justice Collaborative, um, wherever you are, if you, I mean, everything's virtual right now. So if folks are trying to, you know, do some joint ventures, um, the School of Social Work is always looking to collaborate with folks um, and be connected to people doing good work. Uh, and from there, that, I mean, I think that's really, that, that's really it for the moment. We got some other things brewing. I'll let you know about that later. You can share on Twitter. Good deal. Good deal. Well, Bizelle, it's been great catching up. I know, like, my wife was like, you know, you don't, you don't talk on the phone for real, but there's, like, three people that call me. And when I, when we talk, like, we, we about to talk. And so it's always good for us to catch up because I know we, when we do link up, it's, it's a lot to cover. Um, I appreciate you as a thought partner for the work that you're doing and the spaces that you're leading. I mean, we need more of us because we, we do get tired and we want to take time to check our sneakers out. So, Right. Yeah. James, thank you for having me, bro. I, I appreciate it. Again, I'd like to give a shout out to my guy, Bizel Taylor, for hopping on the podcast today. I realize more and more as we do these higher education conversations, the way that we perceive the world, or maybe just for myself, the way that I perceive the world as a college student, I was so certain narratives and there were certain experiences that I was supposed to have in order to fulfill some imaginary checkbox that is the college experience. And in many cases, I see now it is rooted in inequity and in many cases also rooted in trauma. But we'll save that for another conversation. And so as we prepare to wrap up the higher education series, we have one more episode coming in two weeks that I am looking forward to. We will be talking to the soon to be Dr. Marcus Dexter, who's going to share a little bit about the student athlete experience when it comes to inequities. And so really looking forward to that episode and as we close out this particular series. As always, please follow us on social media. You can find us on all of your major platforms at this point. We are on Twitter. That is Equity Matters PC. We are on Instagram. That's Equity Matters Podcast. And if you are still using Facebook, we are there too. That is Equity Matters 
That is Equity Matters Podcast. Just look us up and like us, follow. You'll stay updated with all of the newest information and all the newest episodes. And we are working on a website. Stay tuned. As I mentioned before, I am wrapping up my last semester and working on a website is difficult, but we'll get there. So until next time, folks, continue to do the work and continue to know that equity matters.